Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 11th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest is Irvine Planning Commissioner Miranda Lynn to cover city council items currently under consideration. That's tonight. Then in the second segment, Melissa Zai will talk about adolescent mental health in her capacity as program director for Rawi Teen and Parent Wellness Center, recently opened a branch office there in, T- in Tustin here in Orange County. So let's begin the program now. Returning to the show is my first guest, Brenda Lynn, to cover Irvine City Council items currently under consideration, the city's proposed acquisition of the All-American Asphalt Plant, Live Nation's Amphitheater Prospects, and more if we could fit that in. Brenda Lynn has been on this show numerous times now in different capacities. Last fall, most recently, she was a mayoral candidate challenging the incumbent mayor. Earlier appearances were also as co-chair of Irvine Watchdog, a volunteer-based local government overseer, and now she's appearing as the Irvine Planning Commissioner appointed by City Council Member Kathleen Traceder. We'll focus today on the topics under consideration on Irvine's City Council agenda for April 11th without the shallow breathing that gets us all in trouble. She comes to us today from her home in Irvine, and we're recording this the evening of Monday, April 10th. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Brenda Lynn. Thanks so much, Claudia. So the council meeting in two parts, that's the new regimen, is it, that we seem to be having as the special meeting starts at 1 p.m. on April 11th and then the regular meeting at 4 p.m. and both in person and virtual options for attending the city hall meeting. But is that getting to be the regular way of doing things? Well, there are several big items and... I don't really know the reasoning behind it, but it seems to me prudent because the items that do get placed on a special meeting are rather important, are large. They tend to attract a lot of members of the public who come and make public comments. And so they do deserve uh, their own perhaps special meeting and focused discussion where they can have a very thorough deliberation and time to just kind of consider that one item versus taking over a city council meeting. So this Tuesday, April 11th, We will start with the 1 p.m. special meeting regarding the acquisition of the All-American Asphalt Plant. And then at 2 p.m. will be the Great Park Board meeting, which is a regular meeting that happens every month. And then at 4 p.m. we'll have the City Council meeting. So now we'll begin with the first item, the All-American Asphalt proposed acquisition, the proposal to create the Gateway Preserve, they go together. It's a $285 million buyout, and that's located, for all of you just mapping this out, 10671 Jeffrey Road, way north Irvine. So in brief strokes, if you can, whose baby is this buyout? And uh, then we'll go on to the other factors, the aspects of this proposal. Well, I believe the two subcommittee members that were kind of heading this effort were council members Larry Agron and Mike Carroll, though I believe all of them have stated that they've been working on this deal. But I do know the push and the uh, the urgency was really coming from council member Larry Agron. And 
you know, it's surprising to me, quite frankly, that they came up with such a solution so quickly and they've that everything's been moving along as quickly as it has. I know there are members in the community who uh, were part of the Stop Toxic Asphalt Pollutants group who still have their concerns. We have not had a presentation yet regarding more of the details. We will be receiving those tomorrow. And so, you know, I think some of the residents are concerned. What is this deal going to fall through? How secure is it? What are the terms of the deal? What are the residents getting out of it? Um, what are we losing in exchange? But based on the initial information that we've received, the public has received, uh, I think it's a wonderful idea. It's a wonderful solution to this ongoing public health crisis. We have Bomber Canyon and open spaces towards the south side of our city. And this would create an open space preserve in the north part of our city. That asphalt plant that's been a public nuisance will now become a place of community enjoyment, outdoor nature hikes. And what they're planning on doing is connecting the Jeffrey Open Space Trail. And I don't know, I don't know if you've been, uh, Claudia, but it's a treasure in Irvine. It's I mean, been a while. It's been a while. And is this part of a corridor, too, for wildlife that's going to... Yes. Link yes. all the way from the ocean up to the Cleveland National Forest. Yeah. And to be quite frank, I mean, it was a great idea. There is, you know, in, in exchange, we will be adding a lot more housing in that area. You could see the grading that's been happening in the Orchard Hills um, area already. We can and, see it from down here in University Hills. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, regarding the planning commission, because I am chairing the planning commission now and or the Irvine Company has their last phase of Orchard Hills um, up for approval, and everything's been ready to go. And they thankfully have heard the concerns from the residents and have been holding off on placing that item on the agenda for the Planning Commission's approval. Even though the application for the last uh, pl planning area in Orchard Hills, everything checks out, it complies with our general plan, there's really no reason for the planning commission not to approve it other than the concerns from the North Irvine residents regarding the asphalt plant. And so, but thankfully they've heard those concerns and they've decided to hold off on having the planning commission approve that neighborhood um, planning area one, I believe. So we will finally be hearing about the gateway preserve and the acquisition and the terms of the deal. And so, you know, other than what We've seen in uh, the local media and the Voice of OC and the Irvine Watchdog, um, I haven't been getting any more information than the public. So I'm eager to hear more of the details tomorrow, April 11th. So the $285 million is part Irvine city money and part Irvine company money? Correct. The city is looking to have an approval for a budget appropriation in the amount of $500,000 from our general fund for site studies. Um, so initially, we would be using money from our general fund. However, the Irvine Company was willing to give us land that we can then sell to different builders, my, that's my understanding, and get some of the money back that we would need to pay off the money that was needed to acquire All-American Asphalt. So when I saw the $500,000 that the Voice of OC had published last week, that I just am suspicious it's not hard to burn through $500,000 with an elaborate kind of remediation study. And where it, the remediation itself is a pretty open-ended kind of a liability in this whole package deal, is it not? Um, it is. And there, 
you know, it's not to say there are not any potential risks. Um, however, based on what I understand, and again, I'm a third party to this, I'm not a council member, and these plans did not come through the Planning Commission, so I don't have any other details. But based on the parties and their understanding of the possible contamination and how wide, how widespread, how extensive, and how much it would cost, and all the parties involved, I think they have somewhat of a ballpark, and that's why they're asking for the initial 500000 Hopefully, they won't need any more, but, you know, we won't know until we start the process. However, it seems, you know, everybody is committed, the Irvine Company, as well as the city, and they're, they're committed to, you know, finally taking care of this public health concern, and so you know, using their creativity and any opportunities we have, creative opportunities we have to come up with something positive for the community while getting rid of, you know, the toxic air that we, the residents have been complaining about in North Irvine. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that it will all work out for the city's benefit. Well, I'm anticipating for the meeting for the 11th of April is that the remediations are I mean, it's just hanging over there. There'll probably be a lot of people commenting on guarantees. And I don't know if, Brandilyn, you have a feeling for how how vigorous the negotiation capacity is with the city manager and the the largest proponents on the council to negotiate a solid deal for the All-American Asphalt Acquisition. Well, I have to give credit to our new city manager. I have to say he's been working so hard around the clock from what I, you know, and he's very responsive, even to commissioners and members of the community who reach out. I know he's been actively working with the Irvine company in the city and in negotiations and really trying to come up with the best solution possible. And, you know, some of the council members have been working around the clock on this as well as the Irvine company. And so hopefully it's a win-win at the end of the day that, you know, regarding the remediation and how much and how long we won't know until we get there. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see and keep our fingers crossed. But, you know, my, my cursory understanding is, you know, the asphalt was being made above ground and I don't know if at all, um, you know, any of the concerns would go further into the ground. Um, but again, we won't know until we get there. So let's just hope for the best. <laughs> well, I'm just going to be healthily skeptical because we had all over the country, there were defense projects and they are just aerospace, maybe domestic projects, but there were a lot of things that were jettisoned into the ground that weren't seen. And so I, I just am concerned about how, how vigorously the asphalt company will be held to a role in remediating that and how, how to detect that fully. I don't know if those contingencies are. So I'm just leaving that with listeners, leaving that with the commissioner here. We have privy access to here. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is now, she's chairing the Irvine Planning Commission, Branda Lynn, and we're talking about the All-American Asphalt Acquisition Gateway Preserve, sort of it's a tandem kind of a negotiation here with three-party city council, all American Asphalt and the Irvine Company. So what do you have an idea of maybe this time frame? Is that people are people talking about that around the council, the city hall chambers? Well, I believe under the current purchase agreement, um, they're hoping that the asphalt factory would be closed, uh, I believe, around November. 
um, late of this 2023. Year. Yes. And the final close of, I, and I don't know, all, I can't say I know all the, what all the paperwork involved, but the final, you know, sale of the property would be around early next year. That is early 2024. So it's a lot quicker than I could have ever anticipated for something this of this scale. Um, so I just commend all the parties involved. It's really an exciting idea, uh, you know, adventure. If you ask me just to have something in North Irvine that connects all the way down in our city, it would be widely used. I mean, my family, because we live so close to the Jeffrey Open Space Trail, we already use it very often. My my son and my husband are out there out biking every week. Um, and just to be able to connect it all the way through, I think it would just add so much for the community um, in the years to come. So if it's happening so fast and you were in a a civilian capacity with Watchdog, so you were watching how slowly the pickup was to get the attention to doing anything. And now it's all this rapid negotiation. This this kind of time frame must be quite dizzying. Yes, I I agree because for the for two years prior to the November election, we couldn't even get it agendized. If you recall, you know the residents would show up, lined up public commenters, um, dozens of public commenters from North Irvine, and you know it was we couldn't even get it agendized initially. There seemed to be no leadership. It was a lot of finger pointing. Well, the city of Irvine doesn't have you know power. It's not in our jurisdiction. Oh, it's AQMD. And then, you know, they'd go into the senator and the congresswoman in our district and, you know, and it turned out the city did have the power. And to his credit, Senator Dave Min did write a letter and stated clearly that the city of Irvine would be the proper board to initiate a solution and had the power to do so. And it turned out he was correct. Okay, so that was an important factor then, the state Senate, Dave Min representing the district and a little bit the composition of the city council once your appointing council member Kathleen Trusseter was elected. Yes, it seemed, and that's when you know all of a sudden we were able to discuss it, and it seemed like there was a lot more um, leadership. That's not to say it wasn't happening before. I just don't know. But again, there was a lot of frustration because of that rule of two. And there were a lot of items that we couldn't get on. So it just seemed like there was a lack of leader. There was a lack of leadership, in my opinion. And, you know, residents' concerns were not being heard. We couldn't even get a public hearing on these items. And so now that, you know, things are back to how they were prior to 2020, you know, how things have been since our city's incorporation in 1971, not regarding public comments, and that's a side issue in the time that is allowed, allotted each resident. But in terms of being able to, any council member being able to agendize any item. And so now you're seeing, you know, city council meetings that are hours long, as they used to be. The city council meetings prior to 2022, some of them were perhaps an hour, hour and a half long. They, I have never seen a council meeting so short. And a lot of it was due to, I believe, the rule of two the agendizing policy that required two council members approval. And it was just very difficult for certain council members to get anything on the agenda. And now because anybody can, you're seeing these long, you know, hours long marathon meetings that go to midnight. So pressure coming from an election happening on in 2022, a new composition and a, perhaps this collaboration with a state legislative leader a representative that that broke up a logjam. So that's another reminder 
you know, elections have consequences, have, uh, anticipating and having them. So then there is the electrification ordinance. It's a second reading. So is that going to be a formality on the April 11th city council meeting? There's not much more to say. Is there right now? Um, no, there's nothing more to say. Because yeah. we covered that with Ann Creason last week. So, all right. So you were talking about how much longer the meetings are getting. And I just wanted in the middle of this interview, just remind people that constituents comments, they're going to be probably limited to the 90 seconds per person because there are probably a lot of more people turning out once again, and they have the option of either virtually, but they need to get, if they're going to submit emails, then they need to get those in prior to the city council meeting, prior to 1 p.m., prior to 4 p.m. Um, prior to, I believe, when it starts, it, you can if you submit it after, they will still attach it to the agenda. Okay. The meeting, but you, you're not assured that the council members would get a copy. But if they're submitted in an email, it could be a longer than what could be contributed in 90 seconds orally relayed. Yes, or an email could be longer. That's what I mean. I mean. Emails yeah. can be longer. Emails right. can be as long as you'd like. Okay. So the next item is the Live Nation 14,000 seat amphitheater. And I'm Watching in the background, there is a, a it, there appears to be a concern that the noise factor hasn't been addressed yet, and the noise factor might actually be what could sink this project. What's the status of the Live Nation amphitheater project? I have not heard anything further recently regarding you know any negotiations that have been or any deals that have been made the concerns that stood at the last council meeting where this item the live nation item was on the agenda um still stand today i have not heard anything further you know is the size feasible given the fact that we're trying to move forward with this great park framework plan that has a limited budget will we be able to fit this in with all the other amenities i'm not quite sure um, and I don't believe that they've reached an agreement of any sort with Live Nation yet. You know, something of the scale of 14,000 may not work. Um, even 8,000 may not work. We don't know. Um, they're trying to jam so many things in. And at the last Great Park Board meeting, they even brought up the Cricket Stadium, which I hadn't heard about in a very long time. And as well as the USA Water Polo Facility, which if you watch that meeting, um, our city manager clearly stated we did not have money to add that as part of phase one of the Great Park Framework Plan. Um, however, Mike Carroll and, Count and Mayor Farrah Khan were insistent that we move forward with USA Water Polo. Now, some of the details of this facility, I think, are very important for the community to understand. USA Water Polo asked for a specific pool just that just for water polo use. It's a unique size that could not be used by the community for swim meets or anything else because of the uniqueness in its its dimensions. When it's like smaller, it's a shape different. It's what is it? Just the dimensions were apparently off in in a way that it's not like laps for competing. In correct, okay, and a specific for water polo. Um, I guess overall, when we talk about Live Nation and we talk about USA Water Polo, and interestingly enough, you know, Council Member Kathleen Traceder 
she keeps bringing up this name. His name is Patrick Strader, and he's been a known lobbyist who used to um, be, he, he was hired by Five Point in years past. He no longer is lobbying for Five Point under its new leadership um, with this new CEO, Dan Hedigan. However, you know, USA Water Polo and Live Nation, um, they did hire Patrick Strader uh, to lobby for them. And he has had um, a lot of influence over the city council members who also serve as the great park board members over the years. And those who he has been perhaps more influential towards seem to be council member Mike Carroll and Mayor Farrah Khan for whatever reason. And my my concerns are, you know, they're not really looking out for the community needs. It's been very clear over the years that we need another community pool, community um, water facility similar to that of Woolet um, in Heritage Park. And, you know, why are we, I, I guess my concern is why are we using and subsidizing Irvine tax dollars for these special interests that ultimately don't serve the community first? And, um, you know, some examples that come to mind, you know, I don't want to go into all the details, but the ice facility that we have at the Great Park, it is a wonderful, remarkable, impressive facility. However, after it first opened, the open skate time for the community, for us and our children, we were last, you know, they, they opened it up during school hours when we couldn't use it. And there isn't a discount for perhaps the great, for the great park residents who pay a special tax or any kind of benefit toward the community. You know, it was uh, the ducks who get to use it and then the private lessons and, you know, all these and the hockey teams. But when it came to the community, you know, the hours that we got that were available to the community um, didn't seem optimal. And my concern is, even with this water polo facility, you know, if they're wanting to make it a USA water polo facility, will it really be able to cater to our community and our children and our families first? And my concern is the answer will be no. We won't know the details, but at the end of the day, my concern is subsidizing these special interests with tax dollars when ultimately the Great Park is city land and it should be going towards the city and the community and the people who live here and how, you know, I think back a lot to how our city used to develop and where the priorities used to be. And if you look at Heritage Park or the Irvine Barclay Theater, um, you know, the community facilities, the pools, these were all created in the 70s and we're still using them today. And they're the still the main sources of either arts and culture um, with the you know, their artists, the art studio in the Her in Heritage Park um, and the library and the pool, those are still the main go-to facilities that we have, even though our city has more than doubled in size. And the Great Park is a great opportunity to add to the community benefits that Irvine was known for. People come to live in Irvine because we have families and want to raise our children here and it's a great place to live and raise our children. But we need to make sure and balance the infrastructure and the community facilities that the families used to enjoy. And the Great Park is a great opportunity to do that. But when we are prioritizing the needs of the special interests over the needs of the residents that are going to be here and hopefully for generations to come, that is a concern. This was the clarion morning when Five Points proposed taking control of the Great Park in their Development order they submitted for surrounding dwelling units to be approved in the end of 2013. All of this was what folks were warning about. There were, it was just frankly called 
pay to play. And so it's it's all of those pieces that are being built out now. And we we knew this was coming and this is what it looks like now without enough disclosure about why our two council members, the mayor and council member Mike Carroll are so adamant about advancing these Live Nation USA water polo pieces of the great park. So I wish, it's unrecognizable I wish I... from what we used to enjoy prior to 2013. Yes, and I'm sorry for interrupting, Claudia, but I wish I could have clipped the portion of the great park board meeting where, you know, we're all sitting there flabbergasted because city manager Oliver Chi clearly stated, we don't have $90 million for the USA water polo facility. And council member Mike Carroll did not care. And he did not care. And he said, well, what about the people here? And, and here's another frustration of mine, which, you know, we get the government we deserve. If, if the residents don't know, though, we're not going to show up. And who comes to these meetings? You know, when it was the Live Nation agenda item, people who work for Live Nation, they came from outside of Irvine. But the residents, a lot of the residents didn't know this was taking place, didn't know about it, and weren't there to represent. I even heard that Live Nation, you know, I saw that Live Nation was giving out t-shirts and buttons and for people who showed up to make public comments, and they packed council chamber. And the same thing with USA Water Polo. However, the needs of the community really at the end of the day should come first, right? It's sometimes it's really concerning how far we've strayed from really what a council member should be doing and prioritizing. Um, but when we have all these big names and we want to make it, they keep, you know, certain council members keep saying we want to make it a world-class this and a world-class that, you know, it makes you pause and think, what is the priority? I mean, shouldn't we be prioritizing the needs of the community? And again, what I want people to understand is the great park is city land. It's yeah, we've never, we've never forgotten that. Well, I want it at the risk of being super crass, but I think the metaphor just will help us remember what's happening now and later. It's when council member Kathleen Treseder asks Oliver Chi in a city council meeting, was Patrick Strader involved in this or this or this aspect of some negotiation? Her bringing that up, it the metaphor is, if you're, especially when I, you know, I used to live in the Southeast, you turn the light on in your home and you can see all kinds of uh, critters running around, you know, turning the light on in the dark. And it's sort of that, that private sector intrusion making a run for a public good for private yield. So it's very interesting. I've seen her do it twice myself and it's unprecedented, I think, for, but his name used to not be ever mentioned in a, a public forum. And now it's mentioned whenever, I mean, well, I'll listen for it tomorrow when I follow the meeting. So it will yes, come up she, perhaps. And council member Traceder, you know, first brought up that name regarding the Orange County Power Authority. I don't know if you recall, but when all the concerns regarding what was happening there and who was really behind the scenes kind of influencing the decisions that were being made, we heard the name Patrick Strader and Melahat Rafay, um, who, you know, recently accepted a plea deal. And I believe maybe in the next month or two, she may be receiving her sentencing. So, you know, these names have, we, the people, I guess, in the know, the people who have been involved, the council members have known these names for years. 
And what the public sees is not always what really is happening behind the scenes. There's so much uh, happening that the public is not privy to. And a lot of influencing and, you know, even script writing for the council members and a lot of texting that happens during council meetings. And unfortunately, one of, you know, my, one of my concerns, and I'm, I don't know what the solution is other than, you know, perhaps finding, allowing the city to, um, you know, take personal cell phones from the council members during the meetings, um, or if there's a public records request, somehow seizing them. I, I mean, I don't know if that's even allowed, and I know it's not done right now. But, but we all we're all very curious about how much of the flow of conversation is coming through on those right. personal and, you know, handheld devices, for sure. Right, and you know, a ban on cell phones. I mean, I brought this up when I was campaigning, but I, I we need it because it completely violates the Brown Act, open transparency rules. I mean, anything that's happening during a public hearing should be made public, any discussions. They can't have these text messages happening with lobbyists or people telling them how to vote or what to say, you know, and it just takes away from transparency and it's so important. And so I, I know I'm straying here. But well, and I, I frankly, I would like for the mayor and the vice mayor to go to Robert Rules of Order camp so they understand how the procedure works. because. It's in over their heads. They're either quiet or confused publicly. And it's it's concerning to see that. So let's go on to another item since we've sufficiently uh, shaken everybody up with the what the status quo is. The council election districts are going to be, uh, there's a schedule rolling out for Irvine neighborhoods, communities of interest to all participate in what could be the composition of the potential election districts? Is, is that on? It'll be considered sort of an opening bid on the meeting, April 11th meeting? Yes. And to the city's credit, you know, they are making a concerted effort to make sure that they include the public as much as possible. There will be workshops and community meetings and um, town halls, to my understanding. So, you know, be on the lookout. This is something that it would be wonderful to have as many residents engaged and involved as possible. Um, and so April 11th is just the initial public hearing and requesting of, you know, general input from the community. So I encourage everybody who cares about districting. This is a great step forward to increasing representation in our large city. And let me tell you, Claudia, just on the side, I was attending a planning commission academy last week, planning commissioners academy. Uh, through the League of California Cities. And so I got to meet commissioners from all over the state. And when they were talking about the size of their city and, you know, their arena numbers and this and that, our city is so large. And when they heard that we were still at large, they could not believe it. And there was a city which would be this smaller than the size of one of our districts, less than 50,000 residents. And yet they're looking to go to districts. And that just shows how long... How how much we've needed districts and how important it is to ensure that we get candidates who don't need special interest money, who don't need, um, who who can actually knock on every door and meet all the voters, and you know ensure that we get candidates who can really really be independent and work for the community. Um, so I'm I'm excited about that, you know, because it's been very challenging for candidates in the past, just given our size. But districting, we there will be several public hearings and. 
Um, the city is really making an effort to make it an open, transparent, inclusive process. So I do commend them as they always do, but now it's really up to the residents. We really need to show up and get involved and make our voice heard. So I encourage everyone to um, follow this along. It'll be happening. And my understanding is they're trying to get it on the March, 2024 ballot. And so um, they're moving quick and they're, they're going to be That's holding. That's the primary. So Correct. they're, are no none of the proposals by any members of the council are delaying it effectively that we would miss a chance to have those districts in place by the general in 2024. None of those proposals move it back beyond 2024 November, do they? Uh, well, there was so, there was some concern from members yes. of the public um, regarding council member or I'm sorry, Vice Mayor Tammy Kim, where she wanted a, a separate subcommittee of sorts and. Uh, comprised of numerous members of the community. And, you know, if we learn from the Great Park Task Force, you know, or these other subcommittees, you know, they really delay it. And I felt, I guess, a little bit of concern because there was an assumption that our city would not make this whole process open, transparent, and inclusive. When our city is known to do that, you know, with even the protected bike lanes that they're putting in. Numerous workshops have taken place. But if community members don't show up, that's really on us. Uh, the city is really working hard. I know they're going to hold, I believe, at least five uh, public meetings um, in different neighborhoods throughout the city. And then I think another five, perhaps, town halls. I And I don't, I don't see the details in the agenda, but I'm sure they'll go over it at the April 11th city council meeting. So Look out for that. Um, so, Brenda, I want though to where will we get the the distinct impression that the rhythm is being maintained, the beats being maintained, so that there's not going to be a protracted process that will bump this out of the November 2024 general election? Is how are we going to get an indication that we're in trouble to make that deadline? Um. Because that was the matter with that, that when Vice Mayor Kim wanted to introduce another means of creating these districts. So that's well, it's that is going to loom over all of us of whether there's any effort to delay, delay, delay. Well, we and Vice Mayor Tammy Kim has made it very clear she was not in support of districts. She's never been in support of districts. That's why I'm but, bringing that up. Yeah. Right. And so she doesn't have but she doesn't have the votes and she's realized it. She didn't have the votes for the subcommittee idea or task force or whatever this, you know, resident committee that she wanted was either. So now we're moving forward and it seems like she's supportive um, because that's the direction we're headed anyway. And they do, they will provide a timeline. My understanding is, um, ho and hopefully we'll see that. I'm pretty sure we'll see that in terms of, you know, what needs to be done by when to make sure that we get this item on the March, 2024 ballot. Uh, okay. So just more than anything, I think, you know, there the certain council members want this as well. And so they're going to try to make sure, and they will make sure, I'm pretty sure, and they will make sure that it's headed in the right direction and there aren't any delays so that the residents in the city, the voters of the city, get a chance to decide whether or not we want to go to districts uh, this coming March 2024. So the votes, even if Mike Carroll is going to be out working uh, out of town and uh, if there's only four votes, that none of that is going to interfere with moving this process along? At this point, no, I believe they have a plan. Um, and they have dates set already for okay. the community public hearings and um, workshops and such. So I think we're headed full full steam ahead. 
Well, thank you for that. I appreciate your giving us this time before the April 11th meeting before the city council brand. Thanks again for being on Ask a Leader. Thank you so much, Claudia. It's always a pleasure to be here. My guest was, she's chair now of the Irvine Planning Commission, Branda Lynn. Again, this interview was recorded on April 10th. We'll be right back with Melissa Zime, Program Director for Rowey Teen and Parent Wellness Center, recently opened in Tustin, talking about adolescent mental health in these times. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Melissa Zive, Program Director for Rowey Teen and Parent Wellness Center, which has recently opened a new branch in Tustin, California, where she oversees this private facility's partial hospitalization program and intensive outpatient program. Rowey stands for a combination of roots and wings. Rowey, everybody, is the way to pronounce that. Previously, Melissa has worked in private practice and with Love to Learn Consulting and the Stepping Forward Counseling Center. Her other interests include autism spectrum disorders. She completed her Bachelor's of Science in Psychology and her Master's in Social Work, both at the University of Denver. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Melissa Zime. Thank you for having me. So thank you. Tell us first, Melissa, about who your clientele actually is. And we'll move we'll on to sort of the general broader topics. But we want to know who's coming in the front door and sticking around getting this intervention. Yeah. So we work with teens in that are struggling with any type of mental health. Um, so we work with teens that are struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidality, homicidality, and we also work with clients on the autism spectrum, which is something that is a little different than a lot of other treatment facilities in Orange County. We are also a primary mental health facility. So we work with clients that are their primary diagnoses are mental health and not substance abuse. Um, so they do not have those that dual diagnosis, which is um, a substance use disorder with um, a primary mental health. Not the dual. I mean, we do not. One, yeah, we do to not keep have it dual. on. Keep the protocol very clear and singular. Okay, yes. very interesting. So, and in preparation prior to going on air, you were saying that there is a little different model than some of the intervening centers around the country where you are able to enroll maybe a few more people than others. So we really look at the holistic model of working with the client. So we work with the teen, and we also have a very big part of our program that works with the family. So our families are engaging in family therapy with their child, with their teenager, in order to really learn how to communicate with one another, how to validate one another, and really, for our parents, how do I parent a teenager? Yeah, and so I, what I'm also getting at is the, the coverage, the way in which some providers are able to support because this is this is an expensive proposition. To it be is very that door. it is very expensive. So Rowie does um, work with insurance companies, and we are an in network provider. So we provide services in network with a lot of our insurance companies, which does help with the financial burden that a lot of families do struggle with when looking for higher level of care for their teen that's struggling. 
Okay, thank you so much for that. I want then for for the broader audience attention for us to talk about the factors that are contributing and undermining adolescent mental health. And so I I have a, a list, but I want to go go uh, over them one by one. Let's talk about the role that a parental approach has. So parents really take a major component of with with teenage mental health and teenage growth. Um, there is being a teenager is hard. It is so hard to be a teenager. It is so hard to grow up in the world we're growing up in right now with especially dealing with COVID that really impacted a lot of our teenagers and the family dynamic. When looking at parenting a teenager, a lot of times we're looking at families and they're remembering their little baby who wanted their wanted them to hold their hand all the time and support them and be there. And now looking at a teenager, they need something different. And their brains are different. And really, a lot of families need that support on how do I parent my teenager? What do they need? What does validation look like for a teenager? How do I communicate with our teen- with my teenager when there are so many outside pieces pulling them, looking at social media, looking at friends and, and other and school and so many different components that are affecting our teenagers and their growth and their mental health. Um, A lot of our families sometimes do, they accommodate their teenager, they give them so much without them having to earn it. And they are tippy toeing and walking on eggshells. And so that also affects our teenagers and their mental health. And so looking at the family system is very, very important on how we understand the teenage brain and how parents can understand what their teenager needs. Okay, so that actually you mentioned a lot of other factors that are part that enter into when we look at the parental factor by itself, mm-hmm. and so uh, s- social media is it's a peer kind of influence and a pressure. It's a pressure. It's what kind of factor? And are you do you have like a a, a kind of a section on you know don't let Instagram sort of bully you into thinking your life is crap or I mean is there like are there sessions on consuming social media for your clients we do talk a lot about social media we do talk a lot about the influence of social media and also how social media affects our teens confidence and their self-esteem a lot of times we you know we do talk about that snapshot and what you see on social media might not actually be what's happening behind the scenes and how do we not let that affect us Um, we're dealing with teens though so they think it's they they think that that is reality and so it is a lot of work attached to how we manage our social media and helping parents support their their teens in managing their social media so a lot of even our family sessions are around applications creating social media management plans how do we look at social media in a healthy way rather than an unhealthy way social media is here and we have to learn how to manage it and how to teach our kids how to manage it rather than pushing it away completely. And another, and social media, I'm trying to think of the, it's, it's, it, there's manuals that would not otherwise be accessible, manuals that would undermine our mental health, how to end your life kind of social media, or there, there's another part of social media. It's, it's a radicalizing rabbit hole and one doesn't know one's descending into that so you you address the sort of rabbit hole approach where it, it it's if a person feels 
so isolated that they can member up through social media mm-hmm. on a very radicalized there, platform. There is a glorification of mental health, depression, anxiety, suicidality, self-harm on social media. Um, and there's also a lot of positives with social media. And so one of the things that we work on with our families is what are the educational pieces of social media? If you have a, we have clients that are very into um, makeup and makeup tutorials, and there are a lot of positive things that you can find on social media. And how do, do we, how do parents differentiate that? How do they understand what their kids are looking at? Um, TikTok can get very dangerous. And so really supporting families and clients, how do we not get into that rabbit hole? How do we stop and really go the other way and giving them the wherewithal to be able to do that? I'm, I'm kind of wondering as a sort of a side attraction here to this, this social media choice is that are you, is part of the intervention is about, you know, kids for, if you're looking at their kind of vocational, aspirational side of their mental health is maybe there's a broader career choice than being an influencer. You could be doing other things. So is there, are there vocational kinds of things that pique your client's interest? Is that part of the intervention? Think yes. big about your so, vocational future. So for me personally, and something that Roe believes in and what we bring into our community, because what we call we call our, our groups, their community. They're really growing and learning together. And one thing that's really important to me is building passion and opening up the world to things that maybe they didn't know about. So at Rowie, we bring in some therapeutic horticulture where kids are, where the teens are really working on working with plants. And what does that feel like? We bring in yoga providers. We bring in music therapists where our kids are learning new instruments or how to feel connected playing the piano or ukulele or guitar. And so passion is something that is so important. And bringing it back to the parents, it's really important that they build that passion in their kids. So an analogy that occurs to me, what is this intervention is, if we look at peer involvement in a mental health troubled adolescent, there may be only two legs under the stool. And Bringing these other things puts more legs under the stool and you have a more stable adolescent. Definitely. I think it's it's a great analogy really looking at the, the model of how we use the peers to support one another. There's a lot of research regarding group therapy and the importance of group therapy and how being, in, being able to process with one another and support one another is really, really influential in the mental health growth of teenagers. And I'm also thinking of maybe gently moving the parental leg away from the stool. Mm-hmm. So their their stool is now other legs that are supporting them. Mm-hmm. So the parent can be helping, like say, those are that's a great looking stool, but they're not the major leg under the stool. Yep. And one of the biggest things that I tell parents all the time is, especially with teenagers, when you're, you have your eight, nine, 10 year old, they want your advice. They want you to tell you how to fix the problem. And one of the things that I train my parents to work on is just acknowledging that something might be really sucky. This really is sucky for your kid right now. And that might be all they want to hear. They don't want you to solve the problem. They don't want you to fix it. We don't, we can leave our toolkit behind. We just want to sit Sit in it with them. Sit it. Sit in this hard stuff with them, yeah. and let them know that you're there, right? And not trying to fix it for them, not sanitize mm-hmm. the problem, so that yeah. So those are some factors, and you already brought up the pandemic 
restricted socialization, but there must be pandemic 101, 201 to take up. I mean, because it's not, we're finding out there's problems we didn't realize were happening and we're seeing it now. It's like the the slow leak out of the toothpaste tube that the, of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. there's talk about maybe some revelations that you're seeing now that were a result of pandemic isolation. There's so many things as a result of pandemic isolation. The one thing that I can think about that always comes to mind is that clinical clarity. Um, we have a lot of kids that are coming into our program with undiagnosed autism spectrum disorders, undiagnosed ADHD, and which has really affected their mental health. And with not seeing doctors and not doing the the checkups as we, you know, are supposed to during pandemic, so many of those things were missed. And therefore, the mental health crisis with a lot of these clients has escalated. And so that's something that's really important to us at ROWE is clinical clarity and making sure we're finding the appropriate diagnoses to support the client and their family and also the school, right, to be able to support them in the school environment, which is where they spend a lot of their day, most of their days. So, Melissa, I'm wondering if a factor or a a development of this was that parents intervened, shored up their children pharmaceutically to sort of take, address a, an ailing adolescent, but it, it was a pharmaceutical thing that was trying to shore up somebody where, which is not a substitution for socialization. Are you seeing, like, I mean, when they enter, they've got to log in. They've got to give you a, a history, which includes meds. So mm-hmm. did are you seeing, a, like, an uptick of, of drugs that are supporting them? Um, it depends. There are some clients, you know, I always say looking at medication. So medication and therapy are, need to be done together. Um, There is no magic medication, yet using pharmaceuticals and therapy and finding the right medication for the client usually does, I would say the majority of time is actually is what we're looking for. It's like that perfect recipe, family support, medication support, individual support, group support, and really it's looking at all of those puzzle pieces. And the analogy that I use, I love analogies as well, is looking at you know, when clients come into our building, they are puzzle pieces and those puzzle pieces are all over the table. And sometimes there are puzzle pieces that that always sneaky one that ends up under the couch that we always have to find and put together. That was a corner piece all along. A really important piece, right? A corner piece, yeah. The yeah. one you're looking for. And so really our job is finding all those puzzle pieces and then slowly but surely putting them together. And it it's not easy. It's not easy for the client or for the family. And we really want to hold their hand and support them through the good times, the bad times, and the really difficult times. So gender identification, that we know so much more. We, like, uh, non-binary is, is a vocabulary for gender identification that didn't, didn't exist in my adolescent days. Mm-hmm. So that is another factor that confounds the adolescent's mental health. What? What are some important realizations or trends that you want to tell listeners, Melissa? Of course. So gender identity is something that we always ask about in program. We always want to find out 
pronouns. We always want to find out how there's also the piece of clients sometimes open up to us and come out to us in program and to their peers, and they're not quite ready to open up to their parents. They're nervous about what they their reaction is going to be. And so that is a big piece for parents as well is we want to respect where their client or their child is at. And that's something that's really important for us um, as clinicians, as mental health practitioners, is that we want to show our clients that we respect them and their gender identity and ask the questions. Um, I am not a specialist in gender identity. I've, you know, I think it's so important as clinicians, as parents, as community members, is that we ask the questions in order to find out more information because every single teenager, every single child is different and we want to make sure that they feel respected with where they're at in their gender identity journey. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Melissa Zive. She's program director for the Roe Teen and Parent Wellness Center, recently opening a, an a office in Tustin. And I just want to leave with this last rather sizable thought piece for you, Melissa, and for listeners. Having one's school setting be the target of book banning, curriculum critiques, to have that person's school be a zone where active shooter drills are carried out, that would shake up my mental health. And I, I can't help but think that the teenage mind and body are ground zero of an exceptional American culture war. Melissa, you're welcome to either comment on that or we can just leave that give that a moment for listeners to reflect on that do you have a response to that I do I think it's so important thank you of course I think it's so important to remember you know the teenage brain and how the teenage brain works um, looking at our amygdala which is our fight or flight or freeze and then the prefrontal cortex which is really that that blanket that we want to get to cover are, you know, when we are in that fight, fight or freeze, it's almost like that, that beautiful weighted blanket that that moves to cover our amygdala to calm it down. And really remembering that and that our teens are still growing their brains. And with all of those things that you discussed and talked about, we want to show them love and care and sympathy. And, you know, when a teenager needs the support, and sometimes they're not going to ask for it, sometimes their behavior shows it. And just knowing that there's the support in the community to support your family, your teen, and help them see a brighter future. So, I mean, I I said exceptional American culture very advisedly because I've I've lived in other places. I've been immersed in uh, in other societies and how their curriculum deals with bringing sex ed in earlier time or various uh, availability of health insurance, things that just make society work differently than what we're working with here. So that's where I I think some of the things that we're grappling with that are in your practice, they're, they're a non-existent problem in other countries. Is that something that comes to your mind? Like, kids, this is, where, this is the world we live in here. It, it is exceptional. It is. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I want to do. I still personally have hope that we are going to be able to work through these things with our teens. And it's a being a teenager is hard. Being a teenager in America is hard. 
And, you know, we have to be there on the forefront as community members, as clinicians, as the American population to really make sure that our future is able to, you know, be bright. Well, thank you for taking up that rather large thought piece. I want to thank you, Melissa Zai, for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you so much for having me. It is a quote. Well, thank you. So um, that's my guest was Melissa Zive, and she is program director for Rowie Teen and Parent Wellness Center with a facility that's opened in the intestine in Orange County. Well, this is my wrap. Next week, my guests include Stephanie Campbell and Susan Johnston, active in Compassion and Choices Among Legislation uh, other around the country. It's closer to the finish line trying to get them there for a needed end-of-life option. So We'll also hear from Anna Miles. She's director of a Wayward Artist production entitled In the Green. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Shine of this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine